0: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Run Free Podcast. So glad you joined us today. The Run Free Podcast, the podcast is all about honing our inner game and getting strong from the inside out. We strongly believe that whatever is going on inside of our mind, inside of our heart, is going to come out of us when we are out on the race course or in training. And so we know that in order for us to optimize our performance in running, We have to function from the inside out. So that's what we're going after here at the Run Free Podcast. If you're not familiar with it, it is part of Run Free Training's holistic approach to training. We have a five-finger approach to training, and one of those is focusing on the inner game along with focusing on our nutrition, our rest, obviously our training as well. And then the 1%, those little things such as strength training, um, self-massage, all those other things that help us become good runners and maximize our potential but this podcast is about going after what's going on inside of us so that's usually what we do today i'm gonna throw a little bit of a curveball at you guys i'm gonna be going through some questions that we've been getting from listeners which i just love getting hearing from you guys getting questions from you guys so this has been long overdue on my to-do list for the run free podcast so i hope you enjoy today's episode All right, guys, before I get into today's questions, I just want to take a couple quick minutes to uh, just, number one, highlight one of our coaches, Rachel Snyder, just ripped a 10K a little over a week ago. She debuted over 10,000 meters on the track and crushed it. She ran the eighth fastest time ever run by an American, won the race outright, and just looked like a million bucks. So I'm so stoked for Rachel. She is setting herself up amazingly well going into this Olympic year. we got the trials coming up in June, and the Olympic Games will follow a little bit later on in the summertime. So just stoked about where Rachel's at. So big congrats to you, Rachel, and so proud of you and grateful to have you on our team. I know our athletes who are working with you are just – raving about their experiences so thanks for being a part of run free big congrats to you and then uh, another thing I wanted to do is just uh, give you guys a quick little tip, a sleep tip actually. So, recently at Run Free, we did a sleep challenge. Where we had all of our athletes record their sleep, and all of our coaches, by the way, um, record how much sleep they're getting every night. It's just kind of a fun way to stay accountable to one another, get to encourage each other to try and sleep and rest more. We all know that sleep can be the limiting factor when it comes to how hard you're able to train. The more you can sleep, the better you're going to be able to train, the better you're going to respond to training. Yet with that said, I was having a conversation with an athlete recently, shout out to Caitlin, about uh, how sleep anxiety can be a pretty common thing with, I know I've experienced it from time to time, but with athletes in general, where we, especially the night before races, right, where we feel like we have to get a good night's sleep. And there can become all this pressure with like, I got to nail my sleep tonight, and if I don't, I'm going to have a terrible race tomorrow. Or you maybe have a really rough night's sleep, and then you're walking around just stressed out about, oh, I only slept like three or four hours. And it's almost like the expectation of how terrible you're going to feel is worse than actually even how you feel on the day. And uh, so I just wanted to take a second and just challenge us to reframe maybe how we think about sleep to where sleep our job as humans as athletes is to create space for sleep we don't necessarily need to force sleep to happen but rather if we can go to bed at night lay ourselves in bed get ourselves in a relaxed state of mind where we don't have monkey brain we're not thinking about a million things to do sometimes it can be helpful to journal just have a journal right before you go to bed write down all your thoughts that's helpful for you or do a meditation or prayer or read. Anything that you can do to clear your mind can be super helpful right before bed. And that's our job is to create space for sleep to happen. We don't need to feel like we have to force this to happen. Um, We don't want any stress to come with sleep. When we begin to think about sleep and get stressed out, that's when sleep really becomes an issue, right? So I think if we can just make a subtle shift in how we see sleep, going from something that we have to make happen to something where we're simply creating space for it to happen. And our job is just to be in a relaxed state, to lay in bed and let sleep happen if our body wants to take advantage of it happening. And then if it doesn't happen, if we don't get enough sleep as we think we need, Perhaps we just come to a conclusion of it's okay. I my I gave my body a chance to sleep today and it didn't need as much as I thought it needed. And so now I'm going to go throughout my day and my body's going to be okay. And not sweat, not sleeping a lot. So, so important leading up to races. So I hope that's a helpful tip for you guys. Um, and important in everyday life as well. So I just want to not have any athletes out there that are... Having anxious thoughts when it comes to thinking about sleeping. All right, so let's hop into today's questions guys i'm stoked on these questions we've got some good ones and guys i love getting questions from you guys um, keep them coming best way to hit me up is on instagram ryan hall three you can dm me there and uh, shoot me any questions that you'd like to hear me discuss on the podcast i just love uh, you know sharing some things that have been helpful for me on my journey and just hope they can uh, be helpful for you as well so today we're gonna be talking about some long slow distance runs what that means are they useful we're gonna be talking about protein intake for distance runners Talking about slow release versus fast release, when to take each one. Uh, We're gonna be talking about fueling during a marathon. Uh, How many carbs should you be taking in per hour? We're gonna be talking about humidity training. So if you live in a place like Florida, where it's humid almost year round, how do you train in those situations and maximize your performance over a marathon distance or even over shorter distances if you live in those humid climates we're going to be talking about how to strength train without putting on bulk and then on that note we're also going to be talking about is it even possible to be have a muscular physique and be a distance runner and then we're going to end our discussion uh, talking about how to handle post-success letdown emotions so really stoked on today's episode guys and uh Like I said, keep the questions coming. This is a way for the Run Free podcast to not just be me talking at you guys, but me talking with you guys. So, like I said, hit me up, send me questions whenever they come up. I love talking about it. All right, so let's get into the first question. All right, and I'm not gonna say who these are from, but you guys know this is your question. You probably know it's you. So this question was: Would you mind answering why? Uh, to my question below what's the reason for long slow runs just curious as to the intent of that workout is is this what you'd prescribe for say a 330 or 345 marathoner as well someone on their feet longer than a sub 230 marathoner all right so let's talk about LSD running long slow distance runs and do I prescribe them so I feel a little bit like a politician probably answering these questions because I'm finding more and more it's not like a either or, but a a, and both (laughs) kind of response to a lot of these things. Because I find myself sometimes saying, oh, no, like I don't do long, slow distance runs. And then I'll be writing training for my athletes. And I'm like, like one of my athletes, I literally right before this podcast, I wrote in like easy 90 minute run which was their their long run of the week right so i do use them from time to time i will say they're not a big part of my training but there is a place for long slow distance runs uh so when is that time like when might you want to implement long slow distance runs so in, let me first, for you guys who are a little bit confused, what is a long, slow distance run? Just think about like kind of a conversational pace. You could just be in a group. You could run for a really long time at this pace. Your heart rate for for most would be in that kind of like 130 to 140 range if I had to ballpark a heart rate. And that's for adults. For kids, youth, it might be a little bit higher. But just a conversational, easy pace. And so I use these runs sometimes it's setup runs right sometimes i just want my athletes to get in some time on their feet Um, and so i will use them in those situations but for the most part specifically with marathon training i almost always have an element of quality to those long runs so meaning having my athletes run at goal marathon pace or at current marathon fitness pace in the tail end of those long runs in the second half of that long run because that is what's going to simulate racing a marathon the most trying to run fast on tired legs now for some athletes you just need to get used to running that long right so i would never take an athlete who hasn't even done say a two hour long run yet in their training over the last six months in the very first long run just throw them into a hard workout on the back half of a long run so first things first you need to be able to cover the distance so in my mind this is primarily when long slow distance run runs come into place is when you're not accustomed to even running that long so to answer this listener's question if we're looking at a 330 or 345 marathoner, or maybe you're even you know not even that fast not that that's slow but maybe you're a four-hour marathon or a five-hour marathoner The thing you want to consider always when we're looking at training is risk and reward, right? So, yes, it is good to have a lot of time on your feet. Say if you're a five-hour marathoner, like you're going to need to be used to being on your feet for quite a long period of time. Now, I wouldn't necessarily prescribe a a four-and-a-half-hour, four-hour long run like that is pretty excessive, And the risk of injury when you're on your feet pounding the pavement or dirt roads or grass or whatever you find yourself on is going to go up quite a bit when you're spending that much time on your feet. So um, I typically do not like having my athletes go longer than two and a half hours. I will say I'm not coaching a lot of athletes or any athletes right now who are four hour marathoners. Not that I haven't in the past or I'm not open to that, but I just don't have any of those we do have those kind of marathoners on run free but i don't personally coach them but for like those athletes i would want them to go longer than two and a half hours since they are going to be out there much much longer and they do need to be used to being on their feet but i'd say i'd limit that to a three hour run or even three and a half hour run and even that seems long to me so um and and a lot of it depends on the athlete and how much pounding can they take because there are things we can do to get around this time on your feet If you are a a marathoner that is gonna be out there for four or even five hours, you can do some cross training, right? So you can go do a three hour long run and then hop on a spin bike. And that way you avoid the pounding, yet you're still getting a really good cardiovascular hit. You could even get a better cardiovascular hit because you can go much harder on a spin bike um, for that duration right so for example it's gonna be hard to run four hours and then like pick up the pace four hours into a long run whereas you could hop on a spin bike and really kind of bust on some intervals some little short bursts like do some stuff to really get your heart rate high That'd be very very difficult to do when you're running so um, that is a time to do long slow distance running when you're first just trying to cover the distance but I'd say as you get further into your marathon buildup, and by further I mean in the last couple of months, you should be doing more and more quality running in your long runs. So I kind of like to transform the long slow distance run from just covering the distance to something with a little bit of a fartlek run in the back half of it where you're alternating between fast and slow running for a given amount of time. And then transfer that into something more like a marathon simulation, where the first half is kind of like moderate pace, and the second half is at goal marathon pace. And those are those are big boy workouts. Those are those are really challenging. Um, so that's kind of my take on long slow distance runs. I think there is a place for it. I think the other place for long slow distance runs depends on the event you're training for. Um, you know, when you when we're training at Stanford and we're getting ready for the 5K, uh, the long run was not a big emphasis of the week. We were doing long runs, but usually they're fairly chill. There I'd say they're kind of more of a medium pace run compared to a long slow distance run. But over the summertime, so when you're putting in your base phase during your training, that's so For you guys who aren't familiar with base phase, um, that is just when you're first getting back into training, you're just putting in a bunch of miles. This is a great time to do long, slow distance runs because again, you're just getting your legs used to the pounding and being on your feet for a long time. So I hope that's helpful for you guys on long, slow distance runs. Let's talk about protein intake. Second question uh, comes from a listener who says, I know you're a protein fiend now. Uh, Yeah, that's true. Uh, 50 grams every three hours, which, by the way, guys, I don't necessarily – I take 50 grams every three hours, but I don't endorse that or tell anyone to take that much. Like I'm not telling that to any of my athletes or anyone on Instagram or anything like that, so I just want to be clear on that. Um, that's kind of my own personal thing that, I, that I'm playing with. I like to experiment on myself. When it comes to weight training, strength training, and even when I was running towards the tail end of my career, I like to experiment on myself. But I give the tried and true to my athletes. Like I only give them stuff that I know works, that's been pro- proven over and over and over again. Um, unless they want to experiment, like uh, one of my athletes, Colin, he likes to experiment. So I'll throw some some stuff his way for him to try. Out, but even that is kind of like stuff that I'm pretty sure is going to work and and isn't high risk. All right, so anyways, on with the question. Uh, you did talk about slow-release protein before bed and your nutrition segment. Is this a no-brainer for distance runners, especially on workout days, and during hard training in general to aid recovery and help the body rebuild? Yeah, so let's talk about protein. Um, I am a big fan of slow-release protein. I take this primarily throughout the day. I do take it as well before night. And for runners, I really, really like a slow-release protein right before bed. Um, It just gives your body the building blocks it needs to repair itself, to grow, to absorb the training we've been doing, and it's also satiating, right? So, oftentimes distance runners, myself included, wake up really hungry in the middle of the night. Taking this slow-release protein can kind of help you get through the night a little bit better. So, the question is what are slow-release proteins? So, I actually have been uh since I lost my Muscle Milk sponsor last year, which was was a bummer, but I I started buying protein myself. So I went online and I started searching for like slow release protein. So most slow release proteins you're going to find in the form of uh, powders, protein powders. It's going to be a casein protein powder. So I was looking at different stuff, trying out different stuff, and I landed on phase eight protein powder, which is comes from Muscle Tech. So I just started buying their stuff and um, didn't have any relationship with them for a you know, a year I was just buying their stuff and, and had really good results with their protein and felt like it worked really well, um, especially as a slow release protein. So, anyways, I'm in in the talks with them about potentially doing something. They want to, uh, yeah, work out a little bit of a. Get into the running space and and talk to runners more about how to utilize protein in their training. So stoked on that for future future opportunity. But that is the protein. That, like I said, I was buying that before I even started talking to these guys. So love, love their stuff. I was just getting it on Amazon. So you can check that out. Phase 8 is the protein that I take. But again, what we're looking for is like a casein-based protein protein powder before bed that's going to stay in your system a long time if you're not into protein powders you'd rather go the natural route Um, cottage cheese is another good option Um, if you're not into dairy you could just go steak that's a pretty slow release protein Um, but those are kind of my go to's like cottage cheese or uh, this phase 8 slow release protein so yeah before bed I would do that there is a time for quick protein. So a quick protein that's going to get into your body just super fast is whey protein. So that's why I always recommend that post-workout. I also like that in the morning when you've been in a fasted state for a long time and your body needs something quickly, right? So um, whey protein in the morning and post-workout. And then the whole rest of the day, I'm, I'm focused on slow-release proteins and uh, and yeah, so I would definitely recommend that pre-bed. Alright, let's move into the second question. This comes from a listener. He said, one thing I noticed is that elite runners taking a lot more carbs during a marathon than non-elites. Elites might be targeting 80 grams of carb per hour, where non-elites are typically targeting 40 grams or less. Are non-elites missing the boat on race nutrition? Alright, so let's talk about this. Um, it sounds like this listener might be using uh, Morton because that's exactly how they break their um, pouches up. If you're not familiar with Morton, it's kind of became popular with uh, you know Kipchoge and going after his sub two, which he did, and he was taking that during that. And uh, there's a 160 pouch that they have and then a 320 pouch that they have. So 320 calories versus 160 calories. So how much should you take per hour during a marathon? This again, I feel like a politician answering this question because there's so many other factors you have to look at. Number one, how have you trained your gut have you practiced taking in calories so for me like the biggest thing as a coach is i want my athletes practicing their fueling in training so that there's no surprises on race day right like they need to get their gut not only used to taking in calories and fluid during long runs during long thresholds but taking in the exact thing they're gonna be taking in during a race which is why i always recommend recommend to my athletes who aren't elites and don't get special bottles put out every 5K on a table for them, to do a quick search on the website of the race that you're planning to do and uh, see what they're gonna be serving on the course. Gatorade, Powerade, like uh, noon, like what are they serving out there? And then purchase that product, practice with that product so that you're just dialed in, totally used to it going into the race. So, you can train your gut to take in more calories during the marathon, but it has to occur starting in a very small amount and then you're just gradually upping it from week to week or even month to month, just small changes trying to get your body used to processing calories throughout the run. And so, you can up the amount that you can take. So, to answer the question, ideally, you take in as much as your body can process. Now, that's me different for every single person, so I can't say uh, you should take in 40 grams per hour, you should take in 80 grams per hour, or 100 grams per hour. Um, ideally, you take in as much as you're able to process. Now, really interesting thing about this is, guys, there's people all over the map on this, so just to ease your tension, if you're one of those people who's like, I have such a hard time taking in f- fuel during the run, like, I guess I'm just never going to run a good marathon because I can't – if I try and take in any calories, like I'm going to throw it up. Like <laughs> when uh, the world record was set in Chicago a couple years ago um, – I'm blanking on her name right now. How am I blanking on her name? She just raised Sarah too. Uh, the world record holder in the women's marathon. She did not take in any calories during the race from what I hear, all right? Like I mean I'm hearing this from like elites who are around her and – like it's probably true but to me like when I heard that I was like wow that that kind of blows my mind I didn't think that was possible now immediately my mind is like well does that just mean she could run a lot faster I well she ran 214 without anything (laughs) how fast could she run if she's taking in 40 grams of carb per hour or even 80 grams of carb per hour so I, I bring that example up just to be like guys like don't sweat it there's so much that goes into this like a lot of this when i look at this question in particular i just i'm i have more questions right instead of answering this question it's like i have more questions for this potential athlete And being like, okay, well, what does your nutrition look like the day before the race or even two days before the race? How much, how loaded are you with carbs and glucose standing on the starting line? I think if you do a really, really good job of loading up with carbs the last two days prior to the race, I like doing a two-day carb load and spreading that out over two days about 400 calories of extra carbohydrate per day um, over those last two days is how I typically like to carb load. If you're really loaded on the starting line, then you're not gonna need to take in nearly as much as an athlete who maybe didn't load at all and is slightly deplete, in a depleted state, a carb-depleted state, a glycogen-depleted state standing on the starting line. I think that athlete's gonna need carbs really bad, right? Whereas like, if you're all topped off, you might be able to get away with not taking in much during the course of the marathon. Now, ideally, what is ideal? That's always the question I'm after. Like I want to know, I want to get every second I can, you know, for for my athletes. So what is ideal, in my opinion? You look at Kipchoge he ran sub two. He's taking in quite a bit of calories. I think that 80 grams per hour is about what he was taking in. I could be wrong on that, like I need to do my homework probably before saying that, but if I remember correctly, he was somewhere right in that range, right? Which that is a, quite a bit of calories, guys, um, 80 grams per hour, so you're looking at 320 calories per hour, but you know, you think he's only running a two-hour marathon, so he's only taking in 640 calories over the course of a marathon, he is pretty small as well. So, again, guys, there's so many factors here. It's like how big are you? How fast are you burning through your glycogen? Um, what is the temperature like? Like when it's really cold out, you're going to burn through your glycogen faster, right? So things to be aware of. Like if it's a really cold day, you might need more carbs on board than if it's a perfect weather day, 55 degrees, and you know your body's not having to heat itself as much. So just be aware of that temperature also plays into this thing. Body size plays into this. And so typically how I like to structure fluids during a marathon, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. I'm not totally sure. But uh, I got this from my coach, Terrence Mahan, and he would do this with my bottles where they would be – Uh, the first bottle was like half strength, so more diluted bottle, so I'd say more like uh, 20 grams of carb, no, not even that much in that first bottle, like half of that, like 10 grams of carb in that first bottle, um, mixed in with six to eight ounces of water, and that's how much I'd have in every single bottle. Every three miles I was taking in six to eight ounces of water mixed with carb source. And so the carb source would change in terms of concentration, but the amount of water would kind of always be the same. So the idea there is it's easiest to take in carbs when your body is not tired. So you're gonna wanna kind of, when you're running a marathon, you're gonna wanna front load your carbs a bit. Now, why is that first bottle diluted though? Well, it's kind of because I'm already topped off. So not only am I carb loading in the last two days prior to the race and then eating a, a liquid meal in the morning before my marathon, I'm also taking a gel literally right on the starting line. So it's kind of like I'm starting with a bottle. So really when I get to that first bottle, I am still full, full of glycogen. So that bottle's that's why that bottle's half strength. And then they'll move into full strength for most of the race and full strength being – about 50 calories of carbohydrate per bottle. So I was actually taking in less than Kipchoge. Um, 50 to 100, because I would take gels at 20 and 30K. But my other bottles would have 50 calories of carbohydrate and it mixed with 16 ounces of water and then it would my last couple bottles would be more diluted mostly just water because your body still needs that hydration at that point but it becomes harder and harder as you get to 20 23 miles into the race harder and harder for your body to digest those carbohydrates so i know i'm not giving you a very straight answer here Uh, I would say ideally, you take in as much as you're able to absorb. And how do you know how much you're able to absorb? Basically, like, are you having stomach distress out there, right? Like, do you have that sloshy gut feeling? Are you getting things like diarrhea, um acid reflux burping stuff up like then you need to kind of taper down the amount of carbs but you should really only determine what you're going to take in prior to the marathon like three weeks before the marathon because up to that point you should be trying to train your body to take in more and more over the entire course of the buildup. and then three weeks out it's probably not going to change a whole lot so you know about where you stand and that's exactly what you should do in the race so to answer your question as much, you're taking as many carbs as your body can absorb. All right, let's move to the next question, and that is going to be about training in Florida. So this listener lives in Florida, um, and they say this, I know one thing a lot of runners struggle with is marathon prep in the summer. Doing long tempo runs in extremely is extremely difficult in South Florida, where it's 80-degree temps and 90-degree humidity. Um, his best case scenario for about five months of the year. Any recommendations for tackling this problem? Oh, man, I feel for you guys. It, I was getting reading this question. I was getting flashbacks of uh, one time. I think I was prepping for Boston, so it was the winter time. It was like January, and I found myself in Florida. For, I think I was in Miami. Um, I don't know what I was doing out there. I mean, it was like a race appearance or something, but I wasn't racing because I remember I was doing a threshold run in January. And I man I was I thought I was in really good shape and then I did this threshold run it just took one of those runs that just totally rattles you you know you're like dude I thought I was in good shape and man this workout showed the total opposite of that cuz I was running usually like we're up at altitude training and then you pop down to sea level you're running 10 to 15 seconds per mile quicker for your threshold runs and then that day in Miami because it was so humid it was so warm and humid it's like this is January in Florida I was like, I don't know how people train (laughs) here. So I'm going to do my best to answer your question for you. But that is kind of what I want to lead with is you have to make a mental adjustment with your training. If you're training in humid conditions and basically just be like, okay, I can subtract 10 seconds, 5 to 10. It depends on the humidity, right, and the conditions. But I can subtract anywhere from like 5 to 10 seconds per mile, Based on the fact that I'm running in human condition, so like I think, you know, I typically would do my threshold runs at sea level like 445 pace and I was running, I was having a hard time like breaking five minutes per mile um, that day in Florida, right? So you gotta just, instead of fr- like I did, freak out about your fitness and uh, what happened, I'm going the wrong direction, start questioning your fitness, you guys be like, nope, actually that was worth 445 per mile easier said than done i know either way it doesn't matter if it's humor or not when you look at your watch and you see a slow split it's it the first reaction at least for myself is always discouragement but so it's gonna have to be something you're really gonna have to coach yourself mentally through to just be like nope like i know this is worth much much more than that now a second thought with that option that i like to utilize not only for people who train in humid and hot conditions but also people who might encounter like we are now heading into winter time and getting into some extremely cold conditions um say like i have an athlete couple athletes actually, in Chicago training, and uh, I know it's very hit and miss with the weather out there. So, something you can utilize if you're facing just extreme conditions, whether extreme hot or extreme cold, is I like using a treadmill. And I know I can like hear all you guys cringing when I say that, a treadmill. And I'm with you, I'm not like a huge treadmill guy usually. But what I found, and I think you might find this to be true as well, is easy runs on treadmill, not fun at all, man. It's like a competition to see how many times you can't stare at the board right in front of you, You know, telling you how long you've been running and it seems like move in slow motion. But uh, I busted some 26-mile runs on treadmills up here in Flagstaff on snowy days where I'm doing workouts. So if you're doing an actual workout, it goes by much quicker. Now, pro tip on what kind of workouts you should do on a treadmill that actually go by faster. I really like stuff that does pace changing. So rather than doing, say, a threshold where you're just running the same pace the whole time, um, that can tend to go by a little bit slower on a treadmill. Although there's something about like having operating at a higher intensity level that helps it go by a little bit faster than just the easy run. But if you really want it to go by fast, I love, love things like in-and-out miles, in-and-out 800s. So what I mean by that is instead of, say, doing a 12-mile threshold or 15-mile threshold run, you're going to do 800 like a little bit faster in threshold and then 800 meters at like a, I call it floating, like a moderate pace, right? So like a minute per mile slower than gold marathon pace. So say like for simplicity's sake, say your gold marathon pace is six minute pace. So then you do say 800 meters at like 255. So slightly under six minute pace. And then 800 meters at like seven minute pace. So a minute per mile slower than gold marathon pace. So just, changing back and forth between fast and slow, fast and slow, just really it gives you something to like think about and it's the workouts always changing and I don't know. There's just something about it that helps it go by a lot quicker. So if you do find yourself on a treadmill and you find yourself being like, I don't know if I can get through this. Like I'm just like this is going by like the slowest thing ever. Try that out. Try doing a little fart like switching up the pace on treadmill should really help with that. But I really like Going indoors for some key workouts on treadmills, I like to run outside as much as possible for easy runs because your easy run pace it really shouldn't get in your head because it really shouldn't matter that much to you. Like the goal is just to recover, to be conversational, to make it really really chill. Like if you're looking at your clock, on your or you're looking at your your watch and you're like I'm running, you know, eight minute pace instead of eight ten or I'm running eight, 10 pace instead of eight minute pace. Like I don't even like having goal paces on easy runs. I just want it to be chill and easy. Like you're kind of missing the point of the recovery run. If 10 seconds per mile makes that big of a difference. So, um, but on those workouts where you're really trying to nail it. And there are times where guys like going into a marathon, like you want to be able to reflect back on some workouts and be like, I hit that. Like it's okay. Like to get confidence from your workouts like your workouts should give you confidence and i understand why like if you're heading the start line and you haven't had one good workout that is like a little bit of a scary place to be can you still get through that mentally yes um but is it ideal it's a challenge for sure so i would say it's not ideal so going inside where you just hit some really good workouts can be really helpful so if you live in a humid place Hopefully the gym you go to, they they're rocking the AC in there, and at least you can put a fan on. It won't shouldn't be as hot and humid inside in a gym um, compared to outside. And then if you're in a cold climate, you know you head inside and it's perfect conditions. And uh, it is slightly easier to run on a treadmill. Um, Oftentimes they say you need to put the grade up to one or even two percent to have it equal out because you're not getting wind resistance. Um, So there's that. But I just I like the treadmill. I like to use it to just spin the wheels and uh, get your body used to that kind of turnover and give yourself some confidence that hey, I just ran 15 miles at goal marathon pace and just give yourself a little reprieve from those those uh, conditions you might be facing outside. They're making it a real challenge to hit those goal really big workouts. I was actually just having a conversation with uh, one of our other run free coaches, um, Colin, and he, he's training for 1,500, but he's telling me he just did four miles worth of work. So broken up, he didn't do it straight through, but four miles worth of work all at four-minute mile pace on a treadmill, and, so, and they, they're using the treadmill strategically to try and spend a lot of time at a faster pace, right? To get his body used to that turnover and doing, being able to do quite a bit of work. It's also like a built-in pacemaker as well. So you can run quicker on a treadmill for a number of reasons. But I think it can be super, super helpful in both building confidence and also just uh, having a more pleasant experience than suffering through heat and humidity. Um, one other just quick note on uh, living and training in humid conditions is it just – puts a premium on your hydration and fueling just being on point. So make sure that you are taking in tons of water, tons of fluid, and you got to adjust how much you're taking in those conditions compared to if you're running in 55-degree temperature with zero humidity. Obviously, you're going to need much, much more fluid during your long runs if you live in Florida. So um, I think that is a crucial part is you're just going to have to be taking in fluids Calories a lot more regularly so rather than say like you know if I was doing a 15 mile threshold I would typically take in fluids every three miles if I lived in Florida I'd probably be sipping on stuff almost every mile or every two miles Minimum and just be taking in a lot lot more fluid. So hopefully that's helpful. All right. Let's talk about the next question is going to be on uh, strength training and uh, this listener Was asking, so I'm just scrolling through my questions here. Uh, I missed a question. All right. Uh, So I'm not finding this question, but I'm just going to, I did write down the gist of it. So the gist of it is basically uh, limits of hypotrophy. And then uh, a little discussion on gaining strength without bulk. So basically, how big can you get? Just kind of an interesting question. I mean, it's not really relevant to what most distance runners are at. but interesting to think about. I mean, I can speak to this for sure. Like I definitely do not have genetics to get big myself and that is definitely like a limiting thing for myself. But I really see uh, nutrition as this is like the driver here in terms of – so let's let's open it up to a broader conversation that I think will be more interesting for all of you guys – Of. Thinking about how to get bigger or how not to get bigger, right? Depending on what your goals are, right? So like we have all of our distance runners lifting and we aren't necessarily wanting any of them to get bigger. I don't – well, we have a few athletes who actually want to get bigger that we tweak things for nutritionally and give different advice for. But let's talk about like can you strength train without getting bigger? And for me, guys, nutrition is the driver here. Like there's all this discussion about like does does low rep and heavy weight put on less muscle than high rep and low weight and which one is it uh, which is this is kind of interesting it's something I learned about with with bodybuilding and strength training recently is uh you know for bodybuilders a lot of it is time under tension so bodybuilders obviously their goal is to just get big right put on as much muscle as possible and so they talk a lot about time under tension so this is counterintuitive to what most distance runners think i know for myself growing up i always thought like if you don't want to get big you lift light and you do a lot of reps and that just always kind of made sense right but then I was kind of shocked when I got into bodybuilding. I was, I was like, I was kind of bodybuilding when I was, when I was lifting and lifting light and uh, doing a lot of reps. So actually to not put on bulk, typically you want to do heavier weight and lower reps. So, But here's the thing. You can put on weight whether you're doing high rep and lightweight or low rep and heavyweight. The driver of it all is nutrition, guys. Like I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I'll do the same exact strength training plan, right? Whether I'm bulking or cutting. And when I'm cutting, I'm in a caloric deficit or I'm just in maintenance mode, right? And so my my caloric um, expenditure is the same as my intake. So my weight isn't changing at all. And I won't be, I'll be doing crazy strength training for like 60 to 90 minutes a day and I won't be putting on any size at all. Like I guarantee you if I I bring my calories into maintenance mode, I'm not putting on any muscle. And I guarantee you if I'm in a caloric deficit, I'm losing weight, not putting on muscle. So nutrition is the driver of it all in my opinion. So to make this really relevant to you guys, if you're looking to not put on weight, if you're like, yeah, I want to do weights, but I really don't want to get bigger, all you have to do is be in a caloric, um, even, not not in a deficit, not in a, um, in an overload either, right? So just keep your your expenditure and your intake the same, and I would be surprised if you put on muscle unless you're new to strength training. If you're new to strength training, there there is A chance you might put on some muscle. And by new, I mean like within like the first six months. Now, if you are also running on top of that, I've noticed with myself, running tends to really limit how big I can get. So, when I'm trying to put on muscle, I don't run a step. I run as little as possible. Honestly, I do as little physical activity as possible. And I'm not like anal about it. I still go play soccer with my kids and split wood and do stuff that I need to get done around the house and stuff. So, I'm still fairly active. I'm on the bike every day with Sarah, but, you know, riding a mountain bike at 10 miles per hour doesn't. 10 to 12 miles per hour doesn't burn a ton of calories um but i'm moving like as little as possible so if you're concerned about getting too big from lifting i just say you probably don't have anything to worry about if you're running and you're not taking in excess calories now if you're trying to get big and trying to put on muscle i'd say you're gonna have a real hard time if you're running a lot um which we're going to kind of get into in the next question here So hopefully that's helpful. Um, I think it is possible to get stronger as well without putting on bulk, but it's gonna take a lot longer for sure. Like I noticed for myself this summer, like I was actually losing weight, so I wasn't in maintenance uh, mode. I went from 180 pounds down to 167 pounds, and my deadlift got stronger, but certain lifts, I think you're just going to get weaker at bench press in particular. My bench always comes way down when I'm leaning out. Now, if you're in maintenance mode, I think you can get stronger. I think you're just going to have to work a lot harder for it and get pretty creative with how you strength train, which that would be you know, an entirely different topic for a different day to, to get fully into that. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot harder to get stronger. I mean, there's a reason why power lifters are just massive people, and most of them, not all of them, but most of them, you know, are carrying a little bit of extra weight on them, too, like, a little bit of fat on them, so, you know, if you really want, but, you know, like, there's exceptions to everything, right, like, I've seen guys on YouTube, like, benching 405 at 150 pound body weight that aren't, don't have any extra fat on them, so, but they've probably been in the gym for years and years and years and years, right, so, strength, takes time that's something i've learned a lot over the years that just it's about little gains over a really long period of time so i've personally just had to be really really patient with my strength and uh, usually when i'm bulking and trying to put on size my strength is kind of shooting through the roof and then uh, when i'm trying to lose weight it either stalls out or even gets less so but looking at big trends over long periods of time it's just kind of gradually growing but uh Yeah, hopefully that's helpful. And then you know, there's obviously a a lot else that plays into that, optimizing hormones and things like that through you know a good quality diet and sleep is a big, big part of getting stronger as well. So it's a it's a holistic thing as well. All right, let's go to the next question, which is about uh, is it possible to have a muscular physique and be a distance runner? So this kind of related to this, and I think this might be interesting for a lot of you guys who. Maybe you know you look at Kenyans, Ethiopians, and you see just these tiny, tiny people just rolling and it 's kind of easy to look at them and be like, "Do I have to look like that to optimize my performance like obviously you know most people are not trying to become the fastest distance runner in the world, right so I realize like that 's probably not a goal that most listeners have, but I would hope that most listeners do want to improve and and like I've talked about so much on this podcast, it's about personal excellence, right? And seeing how good at something you can get and, and seeing growth. And so like do I have to basically have no muscle on me in order to see how good at this sport I can get? Again, I'm going to be a politician here on this one as well. It's like I, I've seen runners who are world-class distance runners who do – have bigger physiques who do carry more muscle Uh, a guy that comes to mind right off the bat is chris solinsky um who i raced in ncaa championships and who had the american record over 10,000 meters for a period of time and chris was a little bit of a bigger guy you know like he came from the midwest he's like a farmer from what i understand sorry chris if i'm not getting your story totally right here not that you're listening but if you are sorry um But, you know, he definitely, like, had some muscle on him, right? He's, like, a strong-looking runner. I think he was probably about my height, maybe a little bit taller than me. I'm 5'10". And if I remember correctly, he was sitting somewhere in, like, 150, 160 range. And, uh, you know, you would look at pictures of him and be like, yeah, he's got a little bit of muscle on him. So he certainly, you know, he was a world-class distance runner the fastest guy to ever run 10,000 meters in America for a while. So it can be done. You can have a little bit of more muscle on you. I will say this though, Chris, in looking at him, most of his muscle was definitely concentrated in his lower body, right? Like he had a little bit of muscle up top, but there wasn't a lot of extra muscle up top. Um, Another guy I think about who's just shredded, ripped, is uh, Lopez LeMond. Again, one of the best distance runners. Um, in the world in in the US 10,000 meter guy 5,000 meter guys, he's running a good 1,500 too. He's, he's got quite a range he can do a lot of good stuff but if you look at pictures of Lopez you're just like dude this guy's jacked but the funny thing is if you see him in person um, he is super lean super jacked but not necessarily hugely muscular like he's a I'd say on the you know bigger end for like someone of African descent but uh not not a ton of muscle on him. But you see him next to other guys who are also tiny. And you're like, hey, he's got some muscle on him, you know. But uh, he's just super, super lean. So a lot of these guys you're looking at, and I'll notice this, like with myself, is sometimes I look bigger when I'm leaner compared to like right now I'm like 190 pounds. But I don't really look big because I'm kind of soft right now, which is totally typical of bulking. But then over the summertime when I lean out, I'll actually... Be like 20 pounds lighter or 15 pounds lighter and I'll look bigger just because I'm leaner and the muscle is kind of popping out So oftentimes a guy like Lopez he might look like really muscular really big and not to say he doesn't have muscle because he does But he's not like a bodybuilder big, right? He's not like a huge dude Um, So a couple guys there, you know who do carry a little bit of muscle on them So to answer this question, I'd say it really comes back to your goals, right? so like for everyone, we got to kind of sort through what level do we want to take this to, right? Because like the higher, the, the more you want to become, you really want to see how good at running you can get. Like you're going to have to make more and more trades to Achieve that goal, right? Whether it's like sacrificing your social life a little bit, or quality of life because you're training so hard, you have to sleep a ton, you're tired all the time, or you just have to put in a lot more time into your training. Like there's trade-offs for everything, and uh, you know, if you're like me, like like for example, myself right now, I love lifting, I love bodybuilding, strength training, but I'm not willing to do all the little things I need to do to really see how good at this thing I can get. I'm willing to, to be really consistent and to take care of my nutrition and um, get enough sleep and to train for 60 to 90 minutes a day. But I'm not willing to go get massage, do the mobility work, do ice baths, like all this recovery stuff. Like, it to me, the cost benefit is not enough. You know, like I'm not a professional at this. And so, like, I'm not going to be... You know, doing things like ice baths when I should be playing soccer with my girls, right? Like I'm only willing to sacrifice so much for this hobby. And so you got to really evaluate that when, you, when you're answering this question. Is like if you really want to see how good at running you can get, you need to minimize the amount of muscle you're carrying around without a doubt. Or at least minimize the amount of muscle you're carrying around up top. Now, can you still run decently fast? Like can you reach 95% of your maximum potential and carry a little bit of extra muscle around by a little bit? I mean, say like a guy like I'll just use myself for ease of example, who's five foot ten. you know, I race my best at 137 pounds. Could I, and I ran 204 off that. If I was 140, I bet I run maybe 207. Like I'm, so I'm talking about like three pounds and I'm already adding like three minutes to my marathon time. It's that, in my mind, it's that. In my opinion, it's that kind of numbers, right? It's like every three pounds I'm going up, I'm adding minutes to it, right? If I'm 150 pounds, I think I have a really hard time breaking 210. Really, I don't think it happens. Uh, If I'm 160 pounds, like I probably would be if I was just a normal dude running the marathon. I think I could, I don't know, maybe break around like 218, 219 maybe. So you guys can kind of see where I'm going with this a little bit and using myself for example here is that adding weight to your ideal race weight every couple pounds does make a pretty drastic difference in terms of really fine-tuning, right? Like when you're at the upper end of of what is possible for you, when you start adding weight to that, it just makes it that much harder. I mean... You can try this out just by like putting a little weight vest on, you know, get a weight vest that weighs like five or 10 pounds and go for a run with it and see how much it slows you down. Um, now muscle is not just dead weight. understand that like it is going to help you to some capacity, even if it's upper body weight, um, there is some benefits to having some muscle on you. Now, let me just finish this question by saying this, there, this does go both ways, right? It's not like, and I've talked about this on the podcast a lot, it's not like, The lighter you get, the faster you are. Just keep getting lighter, lighter, lighter. And then you're just going to keep getting faster, faster, faster. Like we're not buying into that at all. Um, As I've said before, I got down to 127 pounds, 10 pounds under my ideal race weight. And I was running terrible, really bad. So don't buy into this mindset of like, I need to just be a skeleton, Like that, You're just going to get yourself in all kinds of trouble if you do that. You want to find the the weight that you're the strongest at. And maybe the weight you're the strongest at is more muscular than someone else's strong weight, right? I think that's where we really get ourselves into trouble with this discussion is when we're looking at comparing ourselves to other people. Because we do all have different frames. And for you, your ideal race weight might be a more muscular physique than someone else's. So really important that you keep that in mind when you're trying to kind of figure out and navigate um, how much muscle you should have as a distance runner. All right, last question, guys. Let's talk about post-success letdown emotions. So this listener was talking about how you actually had a really good race in the season and then afterwards just feeling kind of kind of let down afterwards, kind of bored, kind of like, now what? I don't know if you guys can relate to that at all, but um, I think most people can. And uh, this kind of reminds me, uh, I should have looked up this passage, but just kind of came to my mind actually. Um, One of my favorite passages from the Bible talks about, um, Jesus is talking about how when you do something good, when you do something well, like instead of like thinking highly of yourself for it, just kind of be like... And this is a Ryan summary to the max right here, guys. Forgive me for this. But um, he's basically saying, like, basically just be like, it like it was nothing. Like, it's no big deal. Like, I've only just done what I should have done, basically, right? And I think this is where humility, and not that this listener was not humble, but in when we achieve things, if we can look at it and be like, I just did what was possible what um, I knew I could do like it, when you're not thinking what you did was so extraordinary then it leaves room for growth right Cause you're not in this mindset of like I did it I nailed it and now what now there's nothing else to be done right like there's kind of all if you can look at your performance and be like of course like like that's what I did and now like there's much more to be done So I think ideally when I look at like an athlete who's just hit a big goal, I think there needs to be a time of celebration. My dad was really good at doing this with me where every time when I PR, he'd take me out for like a smoothie or do just something small to celebrate what just happened. So you can really soak in that experience and just generate as much gratefulness as possible for what just happened. And then I think there's there's a time for that. And then it becomes time to rest and to soak in that experience. And then to look forward to the future. To I think sometimes, I know for myself, when I'm going through hard times, whether it be from having just had a good race or just having a bad race, having hope is the way through most trials for myself. And oftentimes when I'm going through hard stuff in the running space – Getting out a calendar and figuring out, okay, like what's the next thing I'm going after. I took time to celebrate what just happened. I'm I'm just like overflowing with gratitude that I just had this experience. And now it's time to like go after the next thing, you know? And it's I try to be careful not to make little of what just happened. Like I think that's really, really important that we're filled with gratitude for what we just got to experience. But then now it's time to look to the future because when we look to the future, that kind of fills us with hope of this next thing we're going after and realize that, hey, like, I just took another step up the steps and now it's time to go to the next thing. So um, hope that's helpful for you and uh yeah thanks again guys for sending in the questions love love going through these i got some more like i said there's one there that i missed um and we'll do this again at some point so dm me some questions you want me to talk about ryan hall three on instagram and uh i hope everyone's december's going well you are staying warm the training's going well and until next time guys happy training